you have your existing house, you put an offer in on your dream house, your dream house closes before you sell your existing one. Banks won't qualify to have two mortgages. We might. And therefore you close on your new house with us, sell your old home, refi us out. Right. Okay. Yeah. My wife always jokes it's cheaper to keep her. <laughs> they like country music song, cheaper to keep her. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today's show, I have Taylor Little from Neighborhood Holdings. Neighborhood is a private lender, MIC. Actually, they're a limited partnership, but they do private mortgages for individuals right across the country, actually. And I came across these guys many years ago when they were under the brand Alt Mortgages, and they had some of the craziest pricing in terms of for borrowers for anything that was in the alternative space and no lender fees and they were amazing. In any case, they've expanded significantly since those days. I think they've got 350 million in assets under management. It's an interesting conversation because this is not a world that I know a ton about. I know a little bit. And so for me, it was really about just trying to understand how it works. And we talk about three types of setups that you can have. So there's something called a MIC, Mortgage Investment Company. You've probably heard of that. A mutual fund trust and a limited partnership. So this is a bit technical stuff, but it's actually interesting. And as a mortgage broker, it's useful to know this so you can speak intelligently to your clients. We talk about how one of the unique things that they do is use credit lines. So if you have the right type of structure, you can get these wholesale credit lines from large institutions. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, like $50 million credit lines, and use that to help juice your returns as well as to increase your lending options. That was a fascinating conversation. And then we also get into the kind of the type of borrower that they like to fund and their pricing. They have some fantastic pricing for anything that's in the alternative space. It's a pretty interesting conversation. Check it out. In my Ask the Expert segment today, I talked to Ben from Bloom about where to find reverse mortgage referrals. Before we jump into that, though, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform that is very easy for borrowers to use. It's very intuitive. It's also easy for brokers. And it's got some cool features built in like smart submission notes. When you click a button, it's gonna take the submission notes from the app. It searches the guidelines for lender spotlight. So when you select the lender, it's gonna say, hey, make sure you know that you can't do this or whatever. So then it helps you just decision those files and send them to the right place. And it's also got document collection, which as the client's filling out the application, it's intelligently knowing what documents that they're gonna need. It's pretty awesome. Check it out, finmo.ca. Hey, Taylor, welcome to the show. Hey, Scott, thanks for having me. So, hey, before we dive into Neighborhood Holdings and your guys' crazy growth that you've had of your MIC kind of quietly and secretly over the last five or six years, tell me a little bit about yourself. So how did you get into the mortgage business and how did you end up being the CEO of a MIC? Yeah, pretty good question. It definitely was not in the plan that maybe I would have set up for myself in high school if, if that exists somewhere. But I started my career as a lawyer and so practiced law for about four or five years Happened to have a client that was the family office that ended up starting Neighborhood. So I joined that family office in 2015. It's the Conconi family office. At the time, they were doing some mortgage lending under the banner of alt mortgages, primarily in BC, but a bit in Ontario as well, in Alberta. And we saw an opportunity to build a bit of a business on top of that family office's activity. And part of the reason why we needed to build a business on top of it was just to make sure that we maintain deal flow from brokers. You know, a single family office can only fund so many mortgages. And so we created a new entity we called Neighborhood and got a bank to partner with us at the time to provide a bit more runway and a bit of leverage to help with returns. And from there, just brought on a few friends and family to help support this activity and feed the broker network. And 
if you're a Seinfeld fan, what I like to say is yada, yada, yada. A few years later, we're, you know, a much bigger fund. We're about 350 million. We lend across the country from sort of Victoria to all the way to Halifax. And we're having a lot of fun along the way. Right. I remember when you guys first came out, Alt Mortgages, and your pricing was so crazy compared to everybody else. Like there was no lender fees and there was just interest rates. And so I felt like, remember that Ikea commercial, Get the Car? get the card like don't tell anybody this deal right and so there were actually brokers at the time that were getting deals co-brokered to them to send to you guys because other people didn't know about you sort of this under the radar company and you had very crazy crazy good pricing so okay that makes a lot of sense i've got something i want to ask about so you said you talked to a bank so as a mic i've always understood it and if you don't know what a mic is mortgage investment company pooled of investors money you guys go out and lend them in mortgages depending on the parameters that you guys have set what would you call that so what's it called I'm trying to you know, simplify this for my listener if they don't know what that is. So how would you define that before I ask my question? We call them our lending guidelines and maybe just a bit of a detail here. We're not technically a MIC, although okay. basically we do the same type of lending as a MIC. We're structured as a limited partnership. Okay. And we did that because MICs have rules about how many investors they have to have and how much each investor can hold. And so when we started this business, we had one investor. And so right. we couldn't qualify as a MIC. And so we've just kept this limited partnership structure at the main benefit of a MIC is you can flow returns through to your investors without charging a corporate tax on it. And you can actually do the same thing with a limited partnership. So maybe that's too much detail, but you right. know, okay. we, almost so there's a mutual fund trust this is another way people have set these correct. up. Talking we, we have one of those too. Yeah. What is the difference? Okay, let's get into this because this is kind of interesting. If you're so let's talk about the difference between a MIC, a mutual fund trust and a limited partnership because your background was law. And if I'm a mortgage broker, it's kind of useful to at least understand just from a technical perspective, how do those three things work? Sure. I mean, from a broker's perspective, you won't notice much of a difference. But in the background, you know, a MIC is just a corporation, typically has a manager of the corporation as well. So that managers who sets pricing, lending guidelines, that kind of thing, and the manager will make a fee off the mix activity. A limited partnership is very similar. You know, it has to have a general partner instead of a manager and a number of limited partners. And I believe, and this feels like we're going back to law school here, but I believe the That's test okay. for limited partnership is you have to join together with a view to making a profit, something like this. Well, most of the time uh, people do, unless I guess it's yeah, kind of like, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, that's my joke. I don't think you'd get together to make We want to lose money. Although, no offense <laughs> to anybody here, but I've seen the government lose money in marijuana. You know, right. I remember when that came out, and this is like not a political thing, but it was like the government lost money last year when they got, I'm like, how do you, drug dealers have been making money for years. How do you lose money yeah. in marijuana? But anyway, I'm sure they'll sort it out. Okay, so make limited partnership, and then what's a mutual fund trust? What's the difference with that? Yeah, so mutual fund trust, kind of similar idea. You have a trustee instead of a manager or general partner. So neighborhood does have an income trust, and that's a way to get our investors RSP eligible units in neighborhood. So I'm the trustee of neighborhood holdings income trust. But these all sort of work the same way. So if you invest in an income trust, you own trust units of an income trust. If you invest in a limited partnership, you own LP units, limited partnership units. And if you invest in a MIC, you own shares of a MIC. Right. So really, there's just three different ways to do the same thing with some slight nuance in the structure of it and Correct. being able to run it legally. What is the most expensive one to run? You know, because there's always reporting and stuff. What do you think is the most expensive operationally? I think they're all within a rounding error of each other. Okay, so you there's know, not a significant yeah, difference. Yeah, there's, there's not a clear advantage. Generally speaking, you have to audit all three entities. Limited partnership has a bit more leeway in what it can do. There are restrictions on what mix can do. 
you know, MICs have certain parameters that are given to them in the tax code. And I think they're quite generous. I haven't looked at them in a while, but you know, you can only have three times leverage or something. Well, I, I'm not aware of a single MIC that's even close to that. So there's some okay. detail there. So but, this, okay, this is great. So basically there's yeah. three different structures. Think of it like a condo, a townhouse, and a house. Exactly. You can live in them. And there's advantages and disadvantages to all three, depending on what you need, right? But they all are around the same price. So there's no difference in price. And it's not a perfect metaphor. But so you said you guys raise money. So is it common to use bank money in mix? And if so, it's like a wholesale line of credit. Like you go in and say, hey, brother, I need a $50 million line of credit. First off, that would be wicked. And then <laughs> like, what, what happens there? I'm just curious on the how that works. Yeah, well, that's actually exactly how it works. And we have a $250 million line of credit with six banks behind us now. So that's it. And the way it works for us is, and this is something that differentiates us from our competition and allows us to have the rates we do, is rather than relying primarily on investors who are generally expecting a return between, call it, six and nine percent as high as humanly possible let's be honest yeah, <laughs> yeah. one million dollars i want to yeah. make <laughs> yeah we borrow from a bank and investors and so the bank mm. expects to get paid you know standard rate in the industry is about prime plus 75 and we chisel around that a little bit so we can pay the bank that rate charge borrowers a competitive rate in the alt space and give the rest of the return to our investors so we use leverage, and I'm happy to explain how the leverage works in our fund, but the basic math on it is you lend at, say, 6-7% to a borrower on a million-dollar property. We borrow half a million dollars from the bank at prime plus 75. So half of that borrower's payment is going to the bank, and the other half is going to our investors, except the bank has a much lower expectation of what to get paid than the investor. The investor ends up getting a pretty nice what's called return on equity. For our structure, but most other funds or mix don't do what we do on the leverage side. So most of them do have a line of credit with a bank, but it generally just helps them with cash flows. And there's trade-offs. And redemptions. With it's like, hey, and I gotta give money back. Somebody's like, exactly. oh, here you go. They don't want to be like, oh crap, we're tied up. And exactly. Interesting. See, like this is funny. I didn't even know that we were gonna talk about this, but this is fascinating to me. So if Prime is like 2.45, so you're talking 3.5% is kind of what a bank would expect. Am I on or off on that number? Yeah, give or take. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that the bigger you get, you probably can negotiate a little better deal. So you basically would, yeah. and then you could use half of their money, and then the other money would come from the investors. That's fascinating. With the wholesale line of credit, because now I'm going to go apply for one. I want a $50 million line. I wonder if anybody's <laughs> going to give me one. Hey, look, I talked to Taylor, and he said that I'm good for it. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But if you don't use it, is it the type of thing that there's a cost on if it's being used, or is it free if it's not being used? Yeah, so we do pay on unused capacity in that line. Yeah. So it's called a standby fee. And what does that look like typically? I'm not asking your guys trade seekers, but just industry, what would that look like? Yeah, it's probably in the 50 basis point range, something like that. I'd say that's about standard. And I've asked the banks this. I said, are you better having us borrow from you or have the standby fee paid? Because they get paid either way, right? Yeah. And they are generally better off if you borrow from them. So one decision we had to make when we renegotiated our credit facility, and we just closed it earlier this year, was how much excess cash do we want to have on the side because we pay for it. So we had to do a lot of internal forecasting to think, well, 
can we use all of this or should we ask for a little bit less from the banks and save on that standby fee? So we struck right. a pretty good balance. You know, we're a $350 million fund and we've borrowed $250 million. We actually can't use all of that today. So we have to go and find investors to match what the bank is giving us because the real basic ratio is they will only let us use a dollar if it's matched with an investor's dollar. So our maximum is one to one. So that $250 million line could be $500 million in lending. Correct. Correct. I see. Yeah. Okay. Because they don't want to use just the line of credit on... That's their cushion. That's like their LTV calc. Right. Okay. Because yes, because then it's like they're only risking 50% of whatever your max loan to value is. Interesting. This yeah, is awesome. Well, like this stuff, I never, I didn't know this, any of this stuff. It's kind of fun to geek out on a little bit because when we go to the banks and maybe I'm giving away some secret sauce here, but we help them with the risk because our average loan to value is somewhere between 55 and 60%. And I say somewhere because there are different ways to calculate it and we don't mark to market and all that stuff. But let's say we're at 60%. Well, if a bank is only willing to give us one-to-one debt to equity, $1 bank money for every dollar of investor money. That means they're at 30% LTV on the house that we're lending on. So from the bank's perspective, that's a pretty good risk to take. So that's where we've gone with them. I see. And then, so I understand this, if I want to go get myself a $50 million line of credit, what do I have to put up for security? Like, how do they go, oh, sure. Like, I can't imagine I walk into this, you know, Scotia Bank and they're like, no problem, Scott. Like, how do you you get that kind of... (laughs) Well... Yeah, the collateral is the loan book, right? So they effectively have a first position charge over all of our mortgages. So they get paid first. If we were to liquidate neighborhood, the bank gets all of their dollars back before any of our investors do. I see. So you need they a always big loan book. They, they always the banks win. win. Yeah. Canadian banks are a great investment. They're like the casinos. They will always <laughs> come out ahead, like no matter what. <laughs> Okay. But yeah, it's taken a lot of work to get there with the banks and you do have to have a a specific type of portfolio. They won't just hand out a line of credit like this to anybody. We've got a very homogenous book and it can be a point of frustration. I think when you're really looking to grow that you're limited so much, but we think it's a good trade-off. So we don't lend on things like commercial properties or farms or rural areas, hotels, that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. bare land. But because of that, we have this really, really tight portfolio that the banks like. Right. So there's pros and cons to it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty interesting on how mix, how the whole infrastructure works underneath, which I had knew nothing about. So what is it about you guys? So neighborhood, what kind of stuff do you typically lend on? What are brokers using you for? I'm curious about that. Well, I'll start with the first question. What do we typically lend on? Our bread and butter is urban and suburban liquid properties. So we're really, really focused on liquidity and our team spends a lot of time thinking about the housing market generally and each city we lend in's housing market specifically. So we're not looking to lend on the joke as someone's $10 million Spanish terracotta mansion that no one ever wants to buy. We like really liquid, run-of-the-mill average properties. So we stay out of the luxury space, we stay out of the bare land space, commercial space, et cetera. So our portfolio is really a lot of condos, townhomes, detached homes in urban and suburban markets. And we really, really don't stray from that. Right. And then what's a loan to value that you guys will go to? We'll go up to 75 in most markets. And that is a bit contingent on the borrower's beacon score. We really price ourselves to be at the 
top end of the market, or I guess the lowest end of the market for right. sub 65 LTV deals. So that's our bread and butter. That's what we love. So under 65% loan to value, it's going to be pretty good. And then yeah. what about you guys charge fees? How does that work? What kind of rate range are typically for your the most of the files you guys are doing? Yeah, we'll go sort of five, nine, five and up. And we do one to three year terms. We will charge a fee at times on a deal, but it's really just a buy down of our rate. So if your borrower beacon score and LTV leads to us quoting 695, we do give the option for someone to buy it down to 595 and pay a 1% lender fee. But otherwise, we don't charge fees on top of any of that. So there's no surprises. There's no automatic 1% lender fee to us, no matter the quote. It's usually a decision that's made between the broker and the client. Okay, I may have a dumb question. Maybe this is a really dumb question for a mortgage broker to ask. Why would I want a five rate with 1% fee? When would that make sense? Like if I'm a borrower, what's the difference, I guess? Like, so if I take a 695 and I understand you guys have a three-month interest penalty to leave and I'm only there for six months, it was cheaper for me to take 695 than to pay 595 and a 1% fee or am I out to lunch on that? No, it totally depends on the borrower situation, right? So if you intend to stay for a longer period with us, it makes sense to pay the fee and keep your cash flow going. Some people are really concerned about cash flow. So they'd rather do an upfront rate buy down and then have a lower monthly payment. I see. But to okay. your point, yeah, if you're paying 1% today and the only thing holding you back from getting a bank loan is just getting your tax returns in order and you think you'll do that in two months, you won't pay that 1% fee. That is going to increase your APR. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. And then, so what parts of the country are you guys currently lending? We joke that we're coast to coast, except Saskatchewan. So Victoria to Halifax. We do most of our lending in the major urban markets. So Vancouver, GTHA. We are one of the first alternative lenders to go into Quebec, or at least non-Quebec Western lenders. So Montreal is a market we really like. It's actually our second biggest market in the portfolio. Mm. We do a fair amount of lending in Alberta, Interior BC, Vancouver Island, Winnipeg. And Halifax is a relatively new market for us, but we like it as well. Tell me about why not Saskatchewan. There's actually a reason for this. And you told me and I was like, fascinating, not because you have anything <laughs> against Saskatchewan, but I think people listening would be like, well, that seems kind of weird. There's a nuance with Saskatchewan that other provinces doesn't have. Yeah. And I have to state up front, I love the prairies. I'm from the prairies. It's just more a structural thing. So it's, there's really two reasons why we don't lend there. One, the lending area is not that big, although I think we could get over that. The major one, and this is going back a few years, but our understanding is just the regulatory requirement to lend in Saskatchewan comes at a greater cost than other markets. You have to set up different holding company to lend there. You pay bigger fees to you know the broker regulator out there. So it's just one that we've thought not worth it today, but we would like to get there at some point. And if you look at any of the housing data across the country, markets like Regina, Saskatoon, Edmonton, and Calgary are some of the only affordable markets in Canada that are left, or at least urban markets. Okay. So it's interesting. So you'd mentioned that they basically charge based on how much you have for assets under, they charge something on top of that, right? So if you've got $50 million of loans in Saskatchewan, their fee is based on the size of your book, not based on like, does a regulator charge anything other than your licensing fee? Like in BC, what do you pay other than I got to pay my licensing fee and stuff? But is there any extra costs? Yeah, I don't think so. And I actually just got an email from the regulator here and just a reminder fees are due soon. And I think it was a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars or something like that. It's just a flat fee. And Saskatchewan, to your point, does 
to my memory at least, have a fee that's based on assets, which is a bit unusual. So it's almost, yeah, it's hey, like, I mean, don't, you don't, are. for heaven's sakes, if you're listening to this and you're in other provinces, do not think of this as a good idea and start charging, hey, you know what? <laughs> yeah. Let's just charge an override fee on all these mortgages. Like, seriously, because it would make the price go up for everybody and the government would yeah. be like, woohoo, show me the money. But I'm well, and there is an adverse incentive to doing that. In addition to just being a higher cost of business, you dissuade other lenders from doing business in your province, which means you're not doing a good service to borrowers. So if less- It lowers less competition, competition, which increases price for everybody. Exactly. So you're actually creating is an Correct. anti-competitive market by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I, not, I have friends in Saskatchewan. If you're in Saskatchewan, send me an email, tell me what private pricing is like, mortgages, because I'm interested to know, is it more expensive there than in other areas? It sounds like it could be because the customer is going to pay that. Like, you know, the lender's not paying it, so it's going to get passed yeah. on to the customer. Exactly. Um, okay, so you're all over the country. And then in terms of who's your ideal borrower? So when you look at your book of business, who's the type of clients that you see again and again? Our marketing line is that we provide mortgages to borrowers in transition. So transition is a big word, maybe a vague word, but really our biggest chunk of borrowers are self-employed borrowers. So 35 to 40% of our book is to people who are self-employed at one point. We're writing articles about gig workers and the gig economy and how we support them, which we do. And the reason for that, as many of your audience would know, is it's really hard to qualify for a conventional mortgage when maybe you have three different sources of income and they come at irregular time periods for you. So okay. that's a big one for us. The other one is people who are going through some sort of life event, the terrible D's, death, disability, divorce. Divorce is an interesting one because you go from one family needing one home to one family needing two homes and maybe you just temporarily are unable to qualify at a bank. So we'll help you get that second home. Yeah. And then we also see people who kind of similar to that theme, almost use us as a form of bridge financing. It's not sort of your traditional bridge finance, but you have your existing house, you put an offer in on your dream house, your dream house closes before you sell your existing one. Banks won't qualify to have two mortgages. We might, and therefore, you close on your new house with us, sell your old home, refi us out. Right. Okay. Yeah, my wife always jokes it's cheaper to keep her <laughs> than a country music song. <laughs> cheaper to keep her. Okay, so that's your ideal borrower. And then do you have any kind of sliding scale? I know this is going to be a pretty broad question, but is there a sliding scale? Is there a certain loan size that you guys won't go over? Like, generally speaking, I know it's going to vary from market to market, but... Yeah, it varies from market to market. We tend to shy away from anything over 2 million. And I'd have to talk to the sales team about where our exact bright line is right now. At one point, we had a portfolio constraint that any single mortgage couldn't be bigger than 1% of the portfolio. But we have to revisit that because that's getting to be a pretty big loan size. Mm -hmm. For a while, 2 million would have been a loan that we wouldn't do. But what we realized over the last year or two is that that excludes us from doing deals, say, in the west side of Vancouver, or in the heart of Toronto. So there are very few detached properties, for example, in Kitsilano that will sell for under 3 million. So if you're not willing to go up to two, you just aren't a part of that market. And for better or worse, it's actually a fairly competitive market right now and a fairly liquid market. So we've always been worried about liquidity. The loan to value is just not the thing you're thinking about. You're thinking it's just a marketable property that you're not exactly going to sit on. right. Like a $2 million, you know, I love Edmonton. I'm from there, but 
a $2 million loan on a $3 million property in Edmonton probably would be a less liquid property. There just aren't that many buyers of $3 million homes in Edmonton, whereas in Vancouver, there are plenty. Same with Toronto. Right. It's just so it does condo. vary by region. Yeah. That's just that it's one bedroom condo. That sounds good. Okay. Let me ask you a question that I didn't ask you. What about if somebody's buying with crypto? What is your yeah. next policy on that? We don't do it yet. You don't do it yet. Okay. Say 50% crypto, 50% loan. You guys can't do that? No. Okay. Just from as a guy who runs a big mic and what do you think's the challenge to that and what's the solution? So you've got the magic wand. Yeah. What's the challenge and how do we fix it? Because it seems yeah. to be a problem. Yeah. I think the challenge is, and I am not a crypto guy by any stretch. So I'm very ignorant when it comes to that market, but we have a responsibility to our investors and to our banks to make sure that we keep volatility low in the portfolio. And so if we were carrying some crypto and you had what happened to Bitcoin a few months ago, where it goes from whatever it was, 60,000 bucks a coin or one Bitcoin to 30, we're down on that. So the solution I think for us would be convert your crypto to cash that sits in a Canadian bank account because that is an AML requirement of ours. We obviously wouldn't take a bunch of cash. And then we can lend with that. And I appreciate the market's kind of growing and some lenders out there saying, hey, we can look at crypto as a collateral piece, but we're not there yet. Right. Okay. So if they move the money from their crypto account into a bank account, they could use that crypto. But it's basically, you're right, the currency, some of my buddies are into it big time, but the currency volatility is insane. It yes. swings. So it's it how has you to be even, dollars. Yeah, it has it's to be in dollars. dollars. But how long does that yeah. money have to be in a Canadian account for you guys to do it? I don't know the answer to that question right now. Okay. We do rely on the Canadian banks to do their AML KYC process. So I'd have to check with our underwriting team, but you know, I don't think it would be that long of a period of time. So if you needed to make that conversion, great. We rely on the banks to make sure that you've done it properly. Right. Okay. That's fair. You can't check every little nook and detail. All right. So any other questions I should have asked you about tomorrow? I'm heading down to the bank to get my $50 million line of credit. Any advice right. for me? <laughs> backed by crypto. And <laughs> I don't worry. I got this. It's backed by crypto. And Taylor said he's going to co-sign for me. So we're good. You got this. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you've missed anything. I think, you know, there's lots to talk about in our industry and housing is always a hot topic. Interest rates are always a hot topic and ha always happy to talk about those. Or if any brokers want to talk about those, happy to take the call. I think one thing we often say in interviews like this or calls like this is we think our market is really getting competitive and really growing. And probably the biggest lesson for the broker community is because we find this time and time again, when we have conversations with brokers is really think of alt lenders as just another tool in your toolbox. Mm -hmm. We're a solution for borrowers. And I think a lot of people just don't think of it as such. So if you're in a jam, it's worth giving our group or groups like us a call. Seeing what you can do. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Okay. Well, hey, Taylor, it's been awesome to get to know you. Thanks for going deep in the whole MIC limited partnership, mutual fund trust world, explaining how you guys can all go out now and apply for $50 million wholesale <laughs> lines of credits. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be huge. And then put all the money in crypto because, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can imagine. You're going to end up in jail. I'm yeah. joking. Somebody's going to take yeah. this out of context and clip the recording. Scott said to do this. Anyways, I'm joking. It's a, it's a joke. Okay. Yeah, this is Thanks, buddy. Good chat with you. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks again for listening to that conversation with Taylor. I know that I learned a ton. And sometimes I love these conversations or things that are sort of outside of my normal wheelhouse. 
And this world is definitely not my specialty. You know, when I was in brokering day to day, now that I'm in the training and brokerage business day to day, I was primarily in the A space and did a little bit of this stuff, but it is fascinating to me how this whole world works. And hopefully you picked up a couple of nuggets from it. So if you're listening to this and you're like, hey man, I'd like to get my business going, go check out 10 loans a month. We've got an academy there where we have a bunch of different coaches from every brand and company under the sun that all have a unique superpower. And if you want to learn from some of the smartest, brightest mortgage brokers, check out 10loansamonth.com. We only open it a few times a year. In this next segment, I'll be talking to Ben about where to find reverse mortgage referrals. Check it out. Hey, Ben, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. Good to be back. So, hey, today we're going to chat about where to find reverse mortgage referrals. So you got some ideas on this and we'll jump into it. So most mortgage brokers, if you're new, you're probably going after a lot of realtors. And then as you get more experienced, you have your database that typically is feeding you. But if somebody wants to get more reverse mortgage business, what are some areas that you find that your brokers are having success with? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one area that I think a lot of brokers are finding success with is with the financial planning community, right? Uh, Financial planners, life insurance brokers, really anybody that gives financial advice to seniors. You know, obviously home prices in Canada are up almost 5x over the last 20 years. Almost 70% of seniors own their home. Those that do own their home, you know, more than half of their net worth is built into that home. So we really think it's kind of inevitable that financial planners across the country are going to start building home equity into financial plans. And so why not as a broker be the person that they go to when they have a client that's ready to do that? Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the financial advisor, there's a ton of trust. What I've always loved about financial advisor referrals is their layups. Because if the person has been working with them five, 10 years and they say, go talk to this person, they don't shop you. They're just like, my financial planner told me to come here. And so I've always found the quality of referrals. My experience has been, you know, realtors have more of the buyer type ones, but a good financial planner is an amazing source for business. And you're right. Yeah, you've got that pre-big trust factor. Yeah, the trust factor is very, very high. Okay, so that's a good one. What are any other areas where you find people are finding reverse mortgage clients? Yeah, so one place to look could be family lawyers. We talked about this on an earlier segment, Scott, this concept of gray divorce, right? Where there's a divorce among seniors and the home represents a significant asset in the marriage. And one of the spouses wants to remain in the home. Like for seniors, it's going to be very difficult from a financial standpoint to get a traditional mortgage to facilitate that kind of splitting of assets. So in this case, a reverse mortgage can be a great solution. So family lawyers might not be intuitive for people to think it could be a referral source, but in this case, you know, potentially, you know, a strong source of business. Right. You know, unfortunately, the divorce rate is high, but that's life that happens. Now you've got to decide what to do with the assets. And this is a way for people to stay in a home. So family lawyers would be second. So financial planners would be one. Family lawyers, any other areas where you find people are able to successfully find reverse mortgage clients? Yeah. So, you know, a third area to look is providers of high cost services and products to seniors. So why do you go for realtors to get traditional mortgage referrals? It's because they're close to the point of need, right? And the point of need is money to buy a new home, right? But for seniors who are looking at a reverse mortgage, it's usually some other type of need, right? Some type of you know financial cost or opportunity that's arising for them in retirement that they need to fund and they don't have the assets to fund, right? So for example, home care providers. You know, even before COVID, the vast majority of Canadian seniors indicated they wanted to age in place. They wanted to stay in their home as long as possible. And I think COVID has really just accelerated that trend. But home care can be very expensive, right? If you need, you know, call it full-time PSW support, that's $10,000 a month, maybe more. You know, most seniors don't have that kind of, you know, financial outlay to support that. So a reverse mortgage can be a great solution in that case. So, you know, home care providers, contractors that do accessibility renovations for homes, like you know, ramps and stair lifts, that type of thing. These are kind of high cost products and services that will probably require financing to afford. And a reverse mortgage is a great solution. Right. I didn't think of that intuitively. So, 
Yeah. And then well, services like Nurse Next Door and stuff, is that what you're thinking? Like are those kind of services that sure. provide yeah. different types of in-home care? I mean, it can vary from like full care to like, I have a friend who had a business for seniors. It was just foot care. And I'm like, that's a business. Like, you know, so I'm, you know, 46. I can touch my toes still, but I can see why that would actually be valuable. <laughs> I can like, you know, having a professional foot care. But okay, so there's financial planners, family lawyers, anybody who's providing high cost services to seniors. Any other thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, there's one final, you know, area to think about. And we've talked about this concept of a, of a living inheritance before, right? This concept of starting the process of gifting the assets from one generation to the next while the parents are still, you know, around to see their children benefit from it. Now, with how hard it is for young people to break into the housing market, a reverse mortgage could be a really powerful solution to help solve for a down payment, right, for younger people. So if you have younger clients that are struggling to put together a down payment to get into the housing market today, perhaps their parents, you know, could be potential reverse mortgage clients. It's a very, very tax efficient structure to start the inheritance process and get younger people into the market. And as a broker, you could potentially work both sides of that deal, right? The reverse mortgage from the parents for a down payment, and then obviously the traditional mortgage for the younger clients. So your younger clients could be a potential referral source, you know, for their parents for reverse mortgage. Right. There's a stat I saw recently, 90% of first time buyers in BC, this is probably true if the rest of the country get help from the bank of mom and dad. Right. So whether yeah. that's cash or often it's equity takeout of an existing property, just given the house prices. So that's also a good point. OK, so what would your kind of final words be for people that are looking at, OK, how do I serve you know clients with reverse mortgages and find some more of these people that need it? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just lots of kind of novel places to look, places you wouldn't naturally think about. So financial planners, for sure, you know, family lawyers or estate planning lawyers, tax lawyers, that type of thing. Really, really big opportunity is providers of high cost products and services to seniors and then potentially your younger clients who are having trouble putting together a down payment and might need a bit of help from their parents. So lots of different places to look for reverse mortgage business. Yeah, I think it's great. Okay, so if you guys are listening to this, go check out bloomfin.ca. So it's Ben's company. You guys are the new kid on the block when it comes to reverse mortgages. You're growing like crazy. A couple of things I love about you guys is if the brokers are cool with it, you'll actually take care of the entire process, right? Like you say, hey, look, we understand how to communicate this product. But if you know that it's a product that is the right fit for the client, then you guys will take care of it. And then you pay really well as well on top of it. And the rates are excellent, you know, reverse mortgage rates. So check out bloomfin.ca. And Ben, thanks again for coming on chat with me, brother. Thank you, Scott. All right. Thanks again for listening to today's episode with Taylor and Ben. And if you're listening to this, a couple quick things. First, if you are an experienced mortgage broker, you know, funding more than 100K a year and you want some ideas on how to scale your mortgage business faster and more efficiently, go to 10loansamonth.com and you can get on the wait list. We open that up periodically. Second thing is, is that if you want ideas now to improve your business, you can go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com and set up a free power search account. So you can keyword search all of our past podcasts, find exactly where, you know, scripts or anything in there and you can use it to improve your mortgage business. Go check those out. And thanks again for uh, listening to the show. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.